0: young man who was born into a wealthy family, this is around the turn of the century from 18 to 1900, and his father was a hard man, a businessman, his mother had a soft heart for the Lord, and so she took him to church to listen to D.L. Moody preach, and he gave his life to Christ at a young age after listening to D.L. Moody and you may know his name, although he is somewhat, I think, of a forgotten missionary. His name is William Borden. And he died before he was able to get into the mission field. Now, like I said, he was born to a wealthy family. He went to Yale, and he studied at Princeton under John Gresham Mason. And like Mation, he was growing more and more discontent with the liberalism that was creeping into not only the seminary, but the church at that time. And he felt God's strong call in his life to go and take the gospel to Muslims in China, to a far northern province where no one had ever gone before. Many of his friends said that he was crazy to turn his back on his family fortune and to go into the mission field essentially penniless. His father at one point said to him, you will never run the family business if you continue this idea of yours of going into missionary work. He made a strong choice because he felt convicted that it was what God wanted him to do. While he was in Egypt preparing to leave for China, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died 19 days later. He scribbled a small inscription on a piece of paper in his Bible. Some say moments or days before he passed to be with the Lord. Six small words, three commas and one period. This is what he wrote. No reserves, no retreat, no regret. His mother was traveling from America to Egypt to visit her son before he went off into China to have one last moment together because she did not know if she would ever see him again. And little did she know that on her voyage to Egypt, that was when her son died. He's buried there today. A simple granite stone covers his grave with these six words on it. While he was at Yale he used some of his family resources to purchase a building and a kitchen and some dormitories. Little did he know that the investment that he made at that university would further hundreds and then thousands of missionaries after his death. No regret, no retreat, no reserve. We come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount And we see Jesus, once again, teaching strong words to his disciples. And let's not forget the crowd is listening in and his disciples are, I can almost imagine them leaning into every word that their master is saying to them. And essentially we have before us this morning, two gates, two prophets or two outcomes, two declarations and two responses. But we have one Savior. And as Jesus is wrapping up this Sermon on the Mount, He's driving home the importance to His disciples, the need to understand what's at stake, not just for themselves, but for others. And so it's my hope this morning that we will work through these four small sections and we will conclude our series of the Sermon on the Mount today. And Lord willing, next week we will look into Matthew chapter 10 as to what is the mission of the kingdom. I want to turn your attention now to verses 13 and 14. These are some of the strongest words that I think Jesus had ever spoken outside of what he says to the Pharisees when he confronts them in Matthew chapter 23. And let's not forget that again, he's talking to the disciples, and on the heel of him telling them to not to judge others, that you are not to judge, lest you will be judged, and the judgment that you use will be measured against you. Don't give to dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, he says. And then he follows up with saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are some things that we've worked over the last couple of weeks. But here we are coming to verses 12 and following. And he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And then he kicks into these four doublets, as I want to call them. And he says, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I want to be very clear from the very beginning, the gate is the beginning of the journey. Many of us have probably heard teachers reverse this saying of Christ and saying that the road is hard that leads to the gate of life. That's not what he says here. He starts with the gate and then the way. And so I want to be very clear with us this morning that Jesus is talking about the final destination of all of our souls. Heaven and hell. The ultimate cost. And he says, enter by the narrow gate. Enter, go into it. It's a metaphor of entrance into a condition In fact, the Greek word is a a combination of two words which means towards something and coming from one place to another. And that the way is narrow and that it's difficult. And some people have thought that Jesus was trying to describe to his disciples that the way is so narrow that you can't take anything with you. You have to drop everything at the gate to get in. And the way is narrow and it's hard. And few find it. There's self-sacrifice that's required versus self-aggrandizement that we see today, even in today. No different than it was in Jesus' time. Because we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, don't pray like the hypocrites who stand and want to be heard who announce what they do with trumpets. Don't don't fast like the hypocrites and cover your face and make sure that everybody knows that you're fasting. Do all these things in secret, he says. So there's self-sacrifice in following Christ and following the way. And it will be hard. And there's a mixture of regret and anger and sorrow when i hear preachers say that when you come to christ everything comes easier cuz i look at my own life and go no it wasn't it wasn't easier there are decisions that i need to make in my life that are easier because of christ yes but living as a christian is not easy and there are several promises that Jesus says himself that remind me of the cost. If you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. If you call yourself a Christian and want to follow me, you need to forsake all things. Mother, father, sisters, brothers. And in relationship to my love for the Lord, my love. For my family diminishes. It's not that I stop loving them, but in comparison to the love that I have for my Savior, the love I have for them pales. And am I willing willing to live in that? Because the way that leads to destruction and the gate that opens up its mouth is wide and it's easy. Now there's another thing that bothers me. It's this term life hack. How to make my life easier. Now don't get me wrong. I'm all about productivity and I like to make sure that I'm doing things efficiently. But my, my spiritual hackles get raised a little bit when people start talking to me about how I can hack my life to make it easier. I don't see Jesus saying that in the scriptures. I do see him and hear him saying other things that we will get to. And those who enter through this wide gate and are on this narrow path, we will come to see as Jesus continues on that they are being led astray. They may even believe that they're Christians. They may even believe that they have every right to enter in. And Jesus says some of the strongest things in Scripture regarding their position. For the way is easy, it's wide, it's cultivated, it's pleasant. There's lots of people. You're never going to be alone. You always have somebody to walk with. But in Proverbs, we're told that what, what, what seems right to a man leads to Death. And this comparison of two gates, one is hard, one is easy, one is narrow, one is wide. Few find it, the narrow gate. And I couldn't help but ask the question, well, does that mean that there will be a small number of Christians in heaven? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not for us to know. For the Great Commission will come at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And what does he say? Go to all the nations, not just to some, go to all. Teaching and baptizing. This is not for us to judge someone's heart before the Lord, although as we will read into the next section, there is ways that we can be discerning, but most importantly, brothers and sisters, as we work through this section, may we look at our own heart before we look at others. For Christ is the door to eternal life. In John chapter 10, Christ describes Himself as the door, the way. And living in this kind of life is found only in Christ. And there are blessings to be found in Christ. If you want to be reminded of those, we just flip a page or two back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Once you say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek but let's not get too quick and skip over blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. This way will be hard and it will be narrow. And in the Psalms, when it uses that language of a way being narrow, it actually means that you feel constricted in the path that you're walking. It's that tight that you can feel it on both sides of your body. And I imagine people trying to bring suitcases with them and the Lord says, "No, you can't. You can't bring that. You have to leave that behind." But what about my iPad? It'll fit. No, you leave that behind too. But what about my friends? No. This way, you walk with me, and with me alone. What about my family? What about my mom, my dad? Leave them to me. You walk with me on this narrow, hard way. But remember, Jesus says, My yoke is light, and I will walk with you. And later on in the gospel, we'll find that Jesus says to his disciples When you go out into the world and you take the gospel with you, people will get angry with you, people will persecute you, you may even go to jail. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in that moment. Just go. Just be obedient. The way is wide. I mean, the the world and our flesh, they want us to take the easy way, correct? But Jesus calls us to the harder way. And the glorious reality is this. That the God who saves us preserves us. The God who saves us never leaves us alone. The God who saves us holds us in his hand and no one, no one, no thing, no circumstance can ever take us from his hand. But he calls us to walk the narrow and hard way. Are you willing to forsake all things for Christ? Are you willing to let go of your stuff, your things, your ego, your pride, your self-reliance? Are you willing to let all that go so you can walk through the narrow gate and begin a journey? with God, with Christ, your Savior, to the very ends of your day on this planet, knowing that it will be hard, but also knowing that in that hardship, when you mourn, there will be comfort. That when you feel poor in spirit, you'll be comforted. And when you strive to become more meek in your life, you find that you inherit the earth. When you forsake all things, the Lord gives you more. He just asks, Are you willing to let it all go and follow me? He moves on to false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. And if you remember, maybe you don't, maybe you do, I preached on this a while ago. And so if you want to go back and re-watch that on, on the YouTube, that, that would be your prerogative. But I just want to spend a few moments in this section. that The word that Jesus uses here to describe false prophets is a word that describes somebody who acts the part yet utters false accusations and false teachings under the guise of divine prophecy and divine guidance. They act the part. And on the outside, they look spiritual, they look put together. They may even be educated, highly educated, from prestigious schools and backgrounds. They may have a pedigree behind them as long as your car. But if they're not teaching the very words of Christ and true to what God says in His Word, they are false prophets. Because Jesus describes them inside as ravenous wolves. Not just wolves. He uses an adjective, ravenous wolves. Now many of us have no idea what a what a wolf may even look like let alone a ravenous wolf but they did they understood too well what a wolf could do to a flock of sheep A ravenous wolf doesn't just kill for the sake of killing and eating it destroys and it destroys for its own pleasure and its own use. He says, beware, turn your mind, and bring yourself near to this, this very fact. Be attentive to what I say, because they will come, and their intent will be to tear you apart. And I can imagine being there, and them thinking, well, okay, well how are we going to know? If, they're, if they look like us, and they sound like us, How are we going to know what their intent is? You just told us not to judge, but how are we going to be able to discern? Jesus is very clear. He says, you'll know them by their fruit. Eventually, the truth will come to light. Paul took this to heart. And in his last two letters that he wrote, he wrote to Timothy. If we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just before he gives Timothy his commission of fighting the good fight, He says this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, and he's talking about a different doctrine other than the one that he has taught to Timothy, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, listen, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You hear that? He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So there are some men who go into ministry for no other reason than it makes a good living. It's a comfortable living. It's easy. And he says to Timothy, beware of these people. They're out there. In his second letter, his last letter, you can almost hear Paul's scratchy voice. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beware of false prophets, Jesus says, who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Questions question is, well, how, we even, how will we know Jesus says, well, you will recognize them by their fruits. And he offers two object lessons here. He says, you know, do you, do you go to a grapevine expecting anything else than grapes? Do you gather figs from thistles? It's a rhetorical question. Everyone knows the answer. No, we don't do that. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a disease tree bear good fruit. Every tree, listen, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's judgment language. So at the end of the life, the false teacher who may believe that they were doing the right thing will find out that they were teaching falsehood and will be judged accordingly. That is scary. Good fruit comes from good foundations. And so here's some very important questions for us to think about. Can someone identify us by what we do? You see, I'm, I'm, I'm remiss of how many weeks ago it was, but I, I said that if I was able to follow you in a non-creepy kind of way, and if I was allowed to observe you for a couple days, I could figure out what your value system is within a few days, maybe even quicker. And I would only need two things. I would need to know what you spend your time on and what you spend your money on, and that's it. That would, that would, dis, that would, dis, that would disclose your value system. Because whatever we value, we give time to, and whatever we value, we give money to. I think a third way, and probably a most more less ways that we can identify who we are by what we do. Some people have said to me, Tim, what do you do for a living? (laughs) My first answer is, well, do you have a half an hour? But if people look at the fruit of your life, would they be able to know that you're a Christian? Sin diseases the very roots of us all, as we talked about last week. Original sin and how it affects every part of our life, even the roots of our life. And the only way that we can have complete healing from all of that is through God, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and choosing the narrow way. Forsaking all the things that we may hold dear knowing that God may ask us to turn our back on them. Good fruit comes from our obedience to God's Word. Let's not forget, brothers and sisters, that God's Word has three aspects to it. One is it's revelation It's the revelation of who God is. Secondly, it's there's a moral code to it. But thirdly, and I think this is the part that we often skip over or not think about enough, is that there's a pedagogical aspect to God's Word. It teaches us things. And I've been guilty of this saying too, is that, well, what does God really want me to do with my life? How do I know God's will for me? Well, my first question back to myself and maybe even to you is, have you read this lately? There's a lot of stuff in here that would tell you what God wants you to do with your life. Somebody some will say, well, Tim, it doesn't tell me if I should marry Suzanne or not. No, it doesn't tell you if you should marry Suzanne specifically, but it does tell you what a godly woman looks like, and maybe you should think about that. Tim, I don't know if I'm a godly man or not. Okay, have you read this lately? Have you looked at some of the stuff that's in here that mirrors back to you some areas of sin in your life? Then what do you do? You just go, well, it's just, it is what it is right you're going to make mistakes or do you look at that mirror like what James says and you know what's there and you remember you never you don't forget and you find out what it says in God's words to deal with the sin in your life and ultimately good fruit does not come from ourselves independently What does Jesus say? If I abide in you and you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Do you hear that? You abide in me and I abide in you. That means we are together in this life. You will bear much fruit. Now that doesn't mean that you'll see fruit every day of every week of every month of every year of your life. There will be barren parts of your life that does not mean that you are not a Christian. It may mean some other things, like there may be some sin in your life that you need to deal with, that you're refusing to deal with. But over the trajectory of your life in Christ, is there fruit? Are you growing more like Christ? Are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life? And for some people, I ask the question, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I've never been asked the question, define love. What do you mean by love? They know exactly what I'm talking about. And I say, "Do do you love his word? Well, not as much as I should. Yeah, bingo. But you do, don't you? Yeah. Do you love his church? Do you love his bride? Do you miss coming Sunday morning? Yeah, sometimes. Not as much as I should. Yeah, not as much as you should. But you do. That doesn't come from you alone. That's from God. Because we look in the Word and we see who we are before we were Christians and we were hostile to God in our minds. Enemies of Christ. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, because He's so rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. For grace, you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. That is a gift of God. Good fruit comes from good foundations. The Father chose you. The Son saved you. And the Holy Spirit preserves you. And yet we still walk a narrow way. We still have to take each step of every day in this narrow way. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to sell all you have for the pearl of great price? And when you find salvation, are you willing to give up all things for it because you know that that's the only way that you're going to get into heaven? All the good things that you've been trying to do, all the positive things that you've been trying to add up in your life, all the money that you may have been given, all the free time that you may have volunteered. Without Christ, it means nothing. And are you willing to do what it takes to get those roots deep so that even in times of drought, And when you feel barren, you go to God's Word, and it's nourishment for your soul. Psalm 1, you're like a tree planted beside streams of living water, where its fruit does not die and its leaf does not wither. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a guide for my path. Beware of false prophets, because they will teach you other ways that you can get to heaven on your own, though you don't have to worry about the Old Testament, because that's really, it's Old Testament. No, you need to worry about the Old Testament, because it was the scriptures that Jesus used to teach his disciples. It was the scriptures, it was the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus used to battle Satan in his temptation. It was the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus fulfilled every moment of his life, even his death and resurrection and his ascension. They are vitally important. And he continues on. And I've said many times that this is probably the scary, one of the scariest sections in all of Scripture. And I can just imagine the tension building with the disciples as he's he's going through this and he gets to this part. And they don't know it's coming, obviously, but Jesus is going to say it now and they will hear it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios is the Greek word. Master, master is what that means. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven And on that day, many will say to me, Master, Master, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? All these things we did, all these great things that we did, we built buildings, we built schools, we built churches, we sent people on missions trips. We did VBS 10 times one summer. That would be glorious, but their intent is not for Christ. Because Jesus is to them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And that's not I didn't cognitively know who you are. That's not what he's meaning. And I think you understand what he's saying. I never knew you. We weren't abiding together. And you notice there's no last chance. Jesus doesn't say, okay, this is it. You did all that work. That's that's, okay, whatever. You did all that work. Now's your final chance to give your life to me. We don't see this here. They meet Jesus at the end of their life. And they're like, I did all these things. Doesn't it matter? And he doesn't even address it. He just says, "Yeah, but I never knew you. I never knew you. Which the correlation is is that you never really knew me either. We never abided together. I can just imagine the disciples' jaws dropping. Reminds me of the parable that Jesus talked about. In Matthew 25, turn with me there. Matthew 25 has three significant parables in it, all of them dealing with the final judgment. And I'm not going to exegete the the passage for us this morning, but I want to turn your attention here so that maybe later today you will go and you will read this chapter on your own today or this week And the first parable that's there is the parable of the ten virgins. We know there's five wise and five foolish. They're all waiting for Jesus to return. Five have enough oil to keep their lamps burning. Five don't. Look what it says here in verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also. So these are the five virgins that left to go get oil and they came back look at what they say lord lord open to us huh curios curios master master open to us but he answered truly i say to you i do not know you we never abided together they weren't ready and when the time came, they thought they could get everything ready. But it was too late. Two declarations, two, two, end, two ends. One declares allegiance, one de- demonstrates allegiance. You see the de- declaration of allegiance. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? That's declaring allegiance. That's like saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe Jesus was real. But that's where it stops. Has no effect on your life. It has no impact on your work or your family life or your, your personal life. You may even be listening to me now. You may even be here with us this morning and you're not a Christian and you've heard the gospel a million times. And you know the gospel in your head, you could recite it probably better than most of us. But that's where it stops. And Jesus is warning here that if you keep procrastinating with the decision, there may come a point sooner, definitely later, well there will be no more opportunity. And you'll try to mount a case for yourself. And you'll say, but I did all these things. I did this and this and this. And, you know, oh, and by the way, you know, I I, I suffered a lot over here for this. I gave up a lot of opportunities so I could go on that missions trip. I fasted, I gave money, I supported missionaries. Jesus says, I I never knew you. Yeah, you did all those things, but we never abided together. You you weren't mine. You, You never called me Savior. In the final judgment section of chapter 25, is the separation of the sheep from the goats. And it's almost like the people who are the sheep are surprised. They say in verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Jesus will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, the reason they did it is because they loved Jesus. The reason they did it is because they knew that without Christ, they were no better off than anybody else that they were helping. Despite their influence and their affluence, despite the cars and the houses and the jobs, they were no better off than the person that they were helping. Without Christ. They knew that. And they're almost surprised. Like, when did we see you? And Jesus says to them, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. The separation of the sheep from the goats. And it's not about what they did, because they did the same things. It's about their abiding in Christ. It's about their relationship with Christ. Not just knowing that Christ was real and on this planet. Not just the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Because that's historically accurate. We can prove that outside of the Bible a million different ways. But when you come to the resurrection, that's when things really start hitting the road. Because even in Judaism, this sect called Christianity labeled the way they didn't just believe that jesus was the son of god they didn't just subscribe to the fact that he died on the cross as an atonement for their sin no they were declaring not only by voice but by action that jesus actually rose from the dead and that he is lord Do you truly believe? Not just in your mind, but do you truly believe in your heart? Because out of your heart will come the fruit. Do you truly believe? Do you believe that founded on Christ's blood and righteousness That's the only way you get to heaven. Jesus said himself, I am the way to the Father. That's what he said in John 10 I am the door. You can't get inside except through me. There is no other way. And false teachers all over the globe will try to convince people that there are many ways to God. I even sat on the preaching of one preacher a long time ago who said that very thing, that all the paths lead to God. I'm like, what? What? There's an inward evidence of the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For those of us who are thinking, well, am I really saved? I mean, I, I say I'm a Christian. I believe in that. Yeah, and then you should be turning to Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and rose again, then you will be saved, right? That's a promise. You should be writing that on a card and sticking it in your Bible and in your pocket and carrying it with you everywhere you go. Well, what about when I sinned him? Well, then write down 1 Corinthians ten thirteen No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. When you are tempted, he will a right away out under it so that you will... Stand up. Write that down. Put it in a card. Put it in your pocket. There's a myriad of other verses in here that you could do that with. Put it, write them on a card. Put it in your pocket. And I'm sure some of us here would say to you, no, Tim, don't just write it on a card. Store it in your brain. Because there may be a time that you don't have a card in your pocket. I have a friend who's a pastor in Edmonton, and there's a man in his, in his congregation who is memorizing the New Testament because he's getting ready to go into the mission field into an area that I can't say out loud and he knows that there's no Bibles there. So the only Bible he's allowed to take with him is the one in his brain. And I'm like, I I can't even find a thing on my app. And he's putting it in his brain. He's memorizing the New Testament. Digging roots deep. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? All these things will be added unto you. We worry about clothes, we worry about the job, we worry about a house, and to a degree that's somewhat natural in our flesh. We're gonna do that. But as soon as we start feeling the worry and the anxiety of these things, we should be turning to the cross. Going, Lord Jesus, you've given me all of these things. You could take it away in a heartbeat. You've given me these things and and you asked me to steward them, and I will steward them as best as I can according to your word. Help me get over the anxiety. Help me trust in you. I say this to my wife all the time this is not our home. She's like, What are you talking about? This, this, (laughs) This is our home? I'm like, No, no. She knows what I'm talking about. This is not in our home. We're just here temporarily. Because Jesus says, when you ask, what? You will, you will find. It will be given to you. When you knock, it will be open. When you seek, you will find. Right? He just, he just told the disciples this. But there's a discipline to this. There's a discipline to the narrow way that after we've entered into this narrow gate called Christ... There's a discipline in in verses 24 to 28. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And there's an object lesson. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Its foundations were deep in the earth. And he goes on, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came, floods came, winds blew, house fell, and great was the fall. And sometimes we, we, we take this section and we, and, we, and we apply it to other areas of our Christian walk, and I think that that's somewhat tenable and okay. But what the context is showing us here is at the end of the life, when the house is built, Judgment comes and tests the house. That's why it's called a great fall. Because this word great means intense and terrible to a degree that you've never experienced before. And the fall is a downfall of of one one point in your life you had a place of eminence and importance and prestige and status. And then when everything falls, you have nothing. You have nothing. In comparison to the person who hears the words of Christ and doesn't just hear them, but does them, begins to build their house on Christ the rock. And they build a life on Christ, their foundation. And at the end of their life, and God tests that house, it stands. Because its foundation is strong. And if any of you work in construction or have you come close to destruction, construction, you will know that there's the foundation that's made out of cement and then they build the house on top of the foundation. They actually tie the foundation together with the house with what they call hurricane straps. They're about that wide and they're about 18 inches to 24 inches long. And there's about 50 nails in each strap and they nail it to the wood and they embed it in the concrete. Why do they do that? Because when an earthquake comes, they want the house to be able to move but never shift off the foundation. Jesus is saying that when you hear His words and you do them, you are applying those straps to your house so that when the day of judgment comes, the house stands because you've walked the narrow way. You've dug your roots deep. You've surrendered all for Christ. There's a false way of life. There's a false way of living. That's entering the wide gate and walking the wide path. There's a bunch of false teachers who would love nothing more than to tell you what you want to hear. And most of them will charge you for it. Because they want nothing more than a following that will meet their own fleshly desires. They will devour you. Everything about you they hate and they look upon you as a means to their own gratification. But they're willing to tell you whatever you want to hear. There's a false assurance in thinking that you're a Christian when you're really not. That coming to church by itself Somehow you think that makes you a Christian. It doesn't. The only way you get to be called a Christian is if you've given your life to Christ. It happened in the New Testament early on in Acts. All these people, they were called followers of the way. And then in Antioch, that's the first place that they were called Christians. Why? Because they followed Christ with their life. And for some of them, it cost them their life. So much so that that became one of the strongest means of apologetic for Christianity in the the known world at that time. Not only did they treat each other differently, not only did they save babies off the streets that were left there to die, they were willing to die themselves for a religion that most sought and thought was just... A sect of Judaism because they declared they had the strength and the courage to declare that he is risen and for some there's false hope that what you've built and what you have to offer will stand the scrutiny of the final judgment of your life but what are you building on are you building on you Or are you building on Christ? The choice is clear. There's no neutrality here. The choice is clear. It's choose Christ. Or you choose yourself. And Jesus pulls no punches. He says, you choose Christ. The way is hard. It's narrow. But in the end, you'll have eternal life. For those who are willing to give up their life will find it. What What are you hoping will happen when you face the Lord? I hope that, like our brother William Borden, we will be able to write in the last moments of our life no reserve. No retreat. No regret. Because as Job says, we came into the world with nothing. We're going to leave with nothing. And so Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is, is described as someone whose teaching is like none other that people have heard before. They taught with authority. And it wasn't just booming It wasn't like he was slamming the rock pulpit that he had in front of everybody. No, he was speaking with authority because one, he's the son of the living God who with the sheer power of his voice not only created the universe but looked to a sea and waters a little bit later on in the account and said, be still, quiet. And they went quiet and still. And the disciples would say to themselves out loud, who is this that commands the wind and the sea? Yeah, he had that kind of authority. But he also it's also mentioned there that he didn't teach like their scribes, who were just full of head knowledge, and could recite chapter and verse and could dissect the language and tell you nuances, but they didn't abide. It's two choices two gates, two paths, two destinations. I think the choice is clear. If you want to choose Christ this morning, come and see me after the service. I'll be right here. Well, I'll be right there, actually, by the door. (laughs) And if you want to talk more about it, I'd be happy to talk with you more about it. Will it cost you something? Yeah. Jesus is going to cost you everything. But you will gain eternal life. Let's pray.